Head over to Hulu this March, where our new shows and movies will keep you streaming all month long. Catch the award-winning movie, Poor Things, starring Emma Stone, Mark Ruffalo, and Willem Dafoe. Check out the new documentary, Freaknik, The Wildest Party Never Told, about the iconic Atlanta street party. And don't miss FX's Shogun, a reimagining of the epic tale starring Anna Sawai. So, what are you waiting for? Go stream something new on Hulu. We talk a lot about British literature on this show, and I'm not sure if that's because as Americans, we, you know, freaking love the British and revere them to an extent that's probably not healthy. But I don't know. They just seem to have a cannon filled with fuckboys. Greetings and welcome to Fuckboys of Literature. I'm your host, Emily Edwards. And as we've liked to say since the show started about a year ago, fuckboy is a gender-neutral term. And while we've struggled to really come up with some fuckboys that are represented across the entire gender spectrum, I don't think we'll have a problem with today's subject because, man, she is such a fuckboy. So with me today is the literature lady herself, Dr. Janet Bartholomew. How are you today? I am doing great. How are you doing? Good. Thank you so much for being on because although I like to keep this show rather non-academic and most of the time it's just shooting the shit about books, mm -hmm. it is always wonderful to have someone on who knows what the hell they're talking about. So thank you. So the pressure's on, right? <laughs> yeah. No, no. <laughs> No pressure, no pressure, no pressure. It's a show called Fuckboys of Literature. We can only expect so much. So I, I had to decide how to block off this time on my work calendar. <laughs> oh, gosh. So I just, I abbreviated the name of the podcast and I put appointment next to it. So hopefully nobody asked. <laughs> that is so wonderful. That makes me so happy. <laughs> But I'm excited to be here. I love this podcast and I like being oh. online and doing these types of things. So thank you so much for having me on. Thank you, because I love your show, too. And I really appreciate how um, approachable you make everything, because for books like what we're discussing today, which is Mal Flanders by Daniel Defoe, it, it can be hard <laughs> to approach texts like this. <laughs> yes, we kind of have this thing about these um, these classics where a lot of times they're a little heady or they're very dry and the writing doesn't yeah. sound as modern, so it's kind of heavy to get through. But yeah. I like we discuss a lot of Victorian literature mm -hmm. on the show because I think that's just sort of like the the beginning of modernity in people's brain of like when culture started being like what we recognize it now, sort of the mm -hmm. industrial revolution and things like that. And so when you do go farther back for like Defoe, who is writing in the 1600s, 1700s, something like that, I'm 1722, I want to say this came out. Yes, so, you're right. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> it's like I'm sitting in front of a computer and can look it up and not sound like an idiot. Well, that's what I'm here um, for. So, so. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. So like it, I, I, I started the book and really started getting into the rhythm of it. Mm -hmm. And, and it's not as bad once you can sort of train yourself to read the words and what they mean in the context that they're being used. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's it's a bit of a slog. Um, I, <laughs> I I listened to this as a book on tape for most of it, which I thought was pretty helpful because when I would sit down and I would read a chapter um, without having someone read it to me, it, it's kind of laborious going through that syntax and Defoe just kind of talks at you most of the time. Yeah, like we we true. don't we don't really get these like well fleshed out detailed scenes with all this really cool dialogue it's more like mm -hmm. a and then this happened and then this happened and then this happened and it does that it for it's like a 400 year old buzzfeed listicle of like <laughs> this happened and then this happened and then this happened right 
it it does it 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 does have a rhythm to it and once you get into there then you can start kind of appreciating the humor and the craziness that is this woman's life but um it's definitely not something that i think that you can just sit down and skim through really fast <laughs> Yeah, because you you are also a professor of English and literature. Mm -hmm. So, like, do you often just have people walking up to you and being like, "Why? What?" With yes. this like glazed look on their face. Yes, especially Shakespeare. My students. Oh, yeah. I feel so bad for them. I tell them right away, go watch a movie version. I mean, have the book with you, but really, honestly, you need to see how people are delivering lines and acting this out that's a really good point yeah well <laughs> and they're, they're i never got that permission <laughs> when i was a literature student well it's technically you're reading a script right and a lot yeah. of the humor of that period is body humor and things that won't necessarily translate very well to modern audiences unless you yeah. can see it so i i give them my permission like Go get a movie. I can recommend some versions <laughs> Go for you. And Netflix. And yeah, yeah. <laughs> exactly. And then we can sit down and we can talk about, you know, what's happening in the text itself. But yeah. Um, but it is, it's it's a far removal from how we put together sentences now, um, to the point where some students actually will like, oh, I don't read old English or Middle English. I'm like, uh, eh, technically not old English or Middle English. Yeah. But, <laughs> but, but okay. Yeah. At least you're grappling with it. Yeah. I do run into that a lot because I was not a particularly good student, even through college. So I'm always just, <laughs> I don't know exactly what eras things fall in and quite what's happening politically. Mm -hmm. So so it, it, it is a that's like the greatest hurdle of it. And thank goodness for things like the internet where now we can look it up. I know. It's very nice. It's lovely. I was actually on the internet prepping for this. And um, I, I got tickled pink when we finally got toward the end where Mall Flanders is in the old Bailey. Because one, mm -hmm. one of my favorite just screw around for the hell of its sites is the old Bailey online. Because it has all the records of all the criminal trials and things that had gone through there. Oh, that's so cool. Yeah. I mean, it's disheartening, but awesome. <laughs> I mean, it's a rabbit hole. I mean, you can look up any offense. And one of my favorite things is trying to figure out female criminals and what they're doing. And, you know, this is what I do on my wild and crazy weekends, right? So <laughs> I, was, I was in there and um, it took me a while because, I mean, I'm, I'm more of an early modernist. So... I work with stuff that's slightly um, older than Defoe, but I found out that Defoe based this character possibly on a real life female criminal whose mm -hmm. name was Mall King. I mean, she had all kinds of different names, but so I was looking her up and seeing like what she was up to, but it was really, it was kind of this interesting like <laughs> crossover between like what I do for fun and this book that I'm reading right now. <laughs> <laughs> Because I think uh, people can probably determine that Maul Flanders, main character of this book, f female. And we do like to talk about how um, fuckboy is a gender neutral term on this mm -hmm. show. Obviously, people can fall into the trappings of it. Mm -hmm. And I think that she drives this idea home better than any of our other like femme subjects. Like we've mm -hmm. had, we've talked about Daisy Buchanan from uh, The Great Gatsby and a couple mm -hmm. other female characters, but Maul really drives it home <laughs> of the manipulation and, uh, and determination to manipulate mm -hmm. better than any other female character we've discussed. And, and she's, for the bulk of the book, she is wholeheartedly unapologetic and it's kind of almost like inspiring in a way. Like she just goes it in at full throttle and she's like, I'm just going to be this criminal. And, <laughs> and she does. And it's like this long line of men she uses and mm -hmm. the creative ways. She just chews them up and spits she them out. Does. And she's so smart. Like I forgot how clever she was as a character in her little, you know, criminal escapades. Like she does a lot of really kind of gutsy stuff um like turning like the tables deeply on... brilliant manipulations of people i know <laughs> I, i'm remembering one where um she got called up on, like she was kind of caught red-handed and she managed to flip it 
so that she took the guy to court who had accused her mm-hmm. and had everyone completely gaslit that she had been the innocent victim in all this and she managed to sue him and get further money oh, out of him. Yeah, she got paid like a hefty sum of money yes. for basically defamation. And it was like, no, you were there to steal things. How did you do that? It's it's great. And she plays that woman card. Like, it, it's amazing yes. what she gets away with. Like the entire time I was reading this, because again, this is the first time I'd ever read this book. Mm-hmm. I had to check myself and ask, am I recoiling because the actions are bad or because of my expectations <laughs> of female actions of the time? And mm-hmm. it turns out it's both. Right. <laughs> so I I, I kind of had to take this with a grain of salt because it is a male writer writing a female character. Mm-hmm. So um, just as soon as you think that we're getting like this kind of feminist discussion all of a sudden it's like oh but women are really just overly sensitive or or they're Mm -hmm. they're too delicate or they're more prone to sin and you know all those tropes come tumbling out you're like oh we're so close to folks so close yeah Because I know that Defoe like he started out essentially being a political tract writer Mm -hmm. and I don't quite know enough about like the politics of the time to kind of know like were they even broaching like women's rights <laughs> discussions back then or was it all just like taxes and nobility oh yeah they were um so by the time defoe was writing this book i mean women had been on the stage there had been kind of this renaissance for women's speaking and these types of novels with these, you know, kind of nefarious activities became a little bit more popular um, because mm-hmm. they had had this feminine, like I should say, like a proto-feminist movement go through. So um, it he was very much with the times. If you think about other uh, writers that were right around that period where yeah. they were doing some really wild and crazy stuff, but it's, I don't know. It was was an interesting novel. I heard somebody describe it as a picaresque novel, and I don't know if I quite agree with that, but... Mm, Yeah, I don't know if I'd go that far. Yeah, um, so one of the things that I loved about the ending... Can I spoil that for your listeners? Oh, of course. Go for it. The book's like 300 years old. (laughs) Deal with it, folks. So she's she's interesting, right? I mean, she's a total fuckboy all the way, but she starts very much like a woman who just has no prospects no power she's a poor woman yeah and she kind of gets duped by her first lover you know like he kind of strings her along and promises her this security like he's gonna marry her and when he doesn't that's like when she starts having to make decisions to um keep herself to advance herself Mm -hmm. yeah um and then at one point though i think it was like mid-novel because i was reading this i'm like i i kind of thought that she did this for fun but a lot of this is just her being a victim of circumstance and then all of a sudden she's like no i kind of like the stealing thing and so she yes. went from <laughs> she went from like <laughs> like a, doing some kind of theft out of complete necessity and then mm-hmm. she's like this was kind of easy and kind of cool and so yeah. she started getting her skills but there's at- a pretty distinct switch from going with right. like i'm duping <laughs> men into marrying me because i have no other means of survival to mm-hmm. like stealing shit is fun like it is like full-on like juvenile delinquent but she's like 45 when she right. makes the switch <laughs> right and i love at the end she has a happy ending like what the hell it's so great (laughs) like every everything about it is like she's not supposed to and you kind of want her to because she's so clever i thought like at the beginning she kind of sets it up as that like she's being raised kind of like as a foster daughter in Mm -hmm. this relatively wealthy family Mm -hmm. and she starts sleeping with the eldest son and then she kind of says you know in much more formal english than i'm gonna say like i did not put any like um worth on my virtue so like why shouldn't i be sleeping with this man in order to get what i want and Mm -hmm. i was just like whoa that just is really ballsy to say in 1700 well she just freaking owns it like i i that's one of the things i love about her is that she just she's like well this is how it's gonna work and she just goes into town no apologies (laughs) Do you have a favorite crime that she committed? Oh, that's a really good question. I have to say that my I think my favorite 
bit of her life was when she does get her uh, husband from the north, her Lancashire husband, mm -hmm. and they both kind of admit that they were running a scheme on the other one. And then mm -hmm. they're like, thank you very much for admitting it. Have a lovely day. Right. <laughs> They're like, oh, this isn't going to pan out because we're both actually broke and we were marrying the other one for money. This sucks because I kind of like you. And then they just mm -hmm. like go their separate ways. Yeah. And, it, and it's not like the marrying for money, Jane Austen kind of marrying for money. Like they were both actively scamming each other. Like yes. he shows up with his, you know, supposed sister who's actually just like a longtime girlfriend gang member. And, yeah. you know, they like, and she's, she had been setting up all of this context. Like she was a wealthy woman, even though she was totally making it up. And so mm -hmm. it, it's, it's, really honestly at the heart of this is a fuckboy love story between two fuckboys yeah <laughs> it absolutely is <laughs> i love the fact that she gets other people to lie for her mm -hmm. so like when she's talking to the lancashire man about um you know let's get married because i come with like a small purse you know she has mm -hmm. a little bit of wealth she gets someone else to lie and say it's like <laughs> ten thousand times how much right. money she actually has and then when you know the husbands because she did this to multiple men mm -hmm. get angry with her because she doesn't actually come with as much money as she said mm -hmm. she turns around and says well did i actually tell you that and they have to admit no right. the words did not come out of her mouth they just inferred that she was worth more money and she's just like see you can't get mad at me and she just kind of walks away <laughs> right like she she's so good at that manipulation she's, she's almost sociopathic right and yes she, she just sucks it in and she loves the game she likes fucking with people's heads and getting away with it um I'm, it, it I'm amazed that she doesn't actually get a comeuppance at the end because mm -hmm. I was expecting it the entire time yeah, I it was interesting. It, it almost ended like a morality play, right? Like, mm -hmm. but I, one of the things I loved, I'm going to keep using that phrase, one of the things, um, one of the things I really <laughs> liked about her time in the Old Bailey, when she finally does get caught and she can kind of um, ruminate over everything that's happened in her life, mm -hmm. like she's totally can't get to a place of remorse at all until... No until she finally starts thinking about her northern husband and mm -hmm. and even though she's facing damnation she's facing death like everything is on the line she's still like eh. but something yeah. about her love for that guy even though he's a highwayman even though but like they had really only known each other for like yeah. three days before they split and went their separate ways right but there's something about her love for him that gets her to change and yeah it's, it's like such a messed up interesting moment in this book that has been nothing but an entire slippery slope of horrible you know actions <laughs> that she has taken yeah. upon herself and then all of a sudden love saves her but you know, even in that moment, even though these two soulmates meet again in the old Bailey and they have this reconnection. This filthy it, prison where they're yes. both about to be murdered. Right. But it, they're brought together by another scheme, right? <laughs> they're all about like, so how are we going to get out of this one, babe? Okay. Totally. Well. <laughs> True love is built on crime. It kids, is. Just in case you were wondering. <laughs> mutual <laughs> crime well it just goes to show you there's somebody out there for everyone right <laughs> literally everyone well i find it also really funny because he her northern husband mm -hmm. is also the only person she she doesn't have children by does she i don't think so yeah well like is that, like you said they had only been together for a few days before yeah it, it came I, out I, I know that uh, Wikipedia from All Flanders has a lovely little chart of who she has children by because I was trying to keep it straight because she really does have a lot of kids that she all eventually abandons. And yes. that's the part where I started getting a little bit squicked out. And I realized, like, is that because of my expectations of female relationships to the, the people that they birth? Or is it because like, this is actually morally dubious? Right? I, you know, I've grappled with this one, too, because I think, does she have like 12 kids? Is that right? She had 
it's an astronomical number of children, <laughs> especially for the fact that like childbirth had a significant chance of killing you in yeah. those days. Yeah. So and it's uh, six, seven, eight, nine, ten. Yes, 12 children. And she does have mm-hmm. one by her Lancashire husband. And it's mm-hmm. the one that she basically sells to another family. Right. Exactly. I yeah I I kind of noticed that kids are just the side accessory that happens every now and then in her life like her yeah they, her life is just kind of punctuated and she that's one of the things I felt didn't work too well in the novel is at the end all of a sudden she's like a doting mother on Humphrey her mm-hmm. um, son that's in the new world and I was like wait a minute <laughs> like stop the presses because yeah. <laughs> this whole time she's she's sold her kids she's abandoned her kids she hasn't checked up on her kids but they're all. like at all like and she even there was the the phrase her only surviving son or something toward the end so yeah it's kind of implied that they might have all died but we're not entirely sure because defoe just kind of abandons them it's like oh popped out another kid moving on yep it's a very interesting narrative choice from a man writing right. a female character. And I have to admit, like, I do not have kids. I do not want kids. <laughs> kids are not for me. And even still, I was just like, but you do get a little bit attached to them after a little while, right? don't you? Like, there was one that she raised with her with her banker husband uh-huh. when she was the mistress to a banker. Mm-hmm. She raised him for, like, six years. I and know. then when the banker dropped her and like dumped her he was like but you can leave the kid in the house that I've been you know paying for and she just goes okay and like packs up her silver and leaves right <laughs> and, and she <gasps> like he's a television right and she it, she just doesn't even look back and I, I found it also did you notice that she didn't even start thinking about her kids over in Virginia until it kind of dawned on her that she might have inherited something over there Yes, I did notice that. <laughs> because oh, the the crux of that particular relationship is that she marries someone uh, for a ruse and mm-hmm. he has land in Virginia. And then when she goes and lives in the new world in the colony with him, she figures out that his mother has this wild backstory about, you know, escaping Newgate prison and having given birth to another child. And she puts the two and two together and realizes she's married her half brother and mm-hmm. had children by him. <laughs> And which like who knew that the population was so small in England that right. that was a feasible coincidence <laughs> I was surprised they figured it out and mm-hmm. I was were you surprised that she actually told people at the end of the novel like yes very much so <laughs> I mean, I was like, accidental incest is one of those shames you just kind of take to your grave. You don't tell people about it. Right. I was surprised. Like, But she was, you know, she's like, hey, northern husband, let's, this thing yes. happen. And then, you yeah. know, like, she writes this letter knowing that her son is going to read it all about how she's like, oops, had incest, had a kid. How's he doing? Yep. <laughs> and mm-hmm. and he shows. And, and then to like her, her northern husband, she's like, we've got a good thing going here, by the way. <laughs> right. And he's like, oh, well. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that's, I think that's what really shocked me more than anything, because she had told like a handful of people throughout the book, including like the governess or the midwife who basically walked her through having one of her secret babies and then selling it to a farming right. couple. She had told this woman as well, as well, and they were like, eh, it's no big deal. Right. Like, ah. People were very nonplussed at the incest. Well. You know, a hundred years after this book, people are still marrying their cousins. So, you know, maybe this yeah, wasn't as point. much of a transgression. I don't know. I'm not even going to go down that road. But yeah, it was just, it was so alarming that this incest was just out in the open and so many people knew and she kept talking about it. And, but it, she was, I don't know, like she was really selective about who she talked about it with. Like she didn't yeah. want, she didn't ever want to see her half brother again, even though he was alive and old, but she cultivated this relationship with her son by him, which yeah. I thought was kind of weird too. So I, I just thought it was really interesting that when she, you know, you're in the last couple scenes of the book and she shows up and she's been, um, transported to the mm-hmm. new world as punishment for her crimes rather than being put to death by the state mm-hmm. and she finagles her way to like not be a prisoner anymore which you're just like 
how. But then she gets to Virginia and she's standing overlooking the plantation where her brother husband was with Mm -hmm. the man that she knows to be her son. And the woman who's brought her to this plantation tells her a verbatim story of Mm -hmm. like how of this man's disgrace. So you're like, was he blabbing to everyone in Virginia? How does this stranger know? (laughs) At this point, I'm kind of wondering like how many people were actually in Virginia at the time because it seems like a really small number. It's like 18 people (laughs) and a Quaker over the border in Maryland. (laughs) And it's amazing how much wealth she just walks into. I mean, she just, she honestly, she shows up on the shore and she has like smooth talked her way into, even though she's supposed to be transported. I, I mean, know. she had a pretty sweet deal on the ship, you know, and she's like throwing yeah. guineas around and and she gets to the, <laughs> the shore and there's this, um, you know, kind of half-assed transaction for her services because she is technically transported. And and after that, she's just kind of on her own. And yep. Yeah, and yep, and and lucks into a plantation, mm-hmm. and uh, this very kindly Quaker man who's going to show her the ropes <laughs> and give her a whole bunch of stuff. And it's like, if ever life was so easy. <laughs> Did you love how she even swindled her son in like? Yes. <laughs> She's like, there is no shame in this woman whatsoever. She's like, oh, honey, here, here's a beloved keepsake. Take this and remember me by. And he holds it and he cherishes it and he kisses it. And it's this pocket watch she totally lifted off of a lady in London. <laughs> like every gift she gives, she nicked from someone else. Like half of the clothing that she acquires is just shit she stole off right. the street. She walks into people's houses going like, hey, I didn't see anybody through the window, so I'm going to take all their silver. And you're just like, this is just brazen and awful at this point, but it's still awesome. <laughs> it's, it's, it is awesome. I, I remember marveling at the scene where... She goes into the silversmith's shop, even though no one's there. And she like mm-hmm. contrives so it sounds like she, you know, she knocked on the door and went in, even though no one was there. And she was totally caught trying to steal it. And somehow she talks her way out of it and even convinces them that she's there to try to get a matched set to a spoon she just <laughs> randomly has in her pocket. I know. <laughs> she just like pops her head in and she's like, hoo-hoo, anybody here? Great, I'm going like, to rifle through your stuff. Exactly, exactly. And she calls uh, one of the justices or magistrate or something, and she has this multiple times in the book where she gets caught. She's like, how dare you you know, accuse an innocent woman? We ought to talk to you know whoever's in charge of the town. <laughs> And, and, and I, I'm not like reading this. I'm like, surely this is the time. Like, no one is this lucky. <laughs> yeah, I know. Especially with like how she, it felt very um, like superhero where they just happen to have something on them that's going to save the day with like right. the spoon she was <laughs> trying to match or yeah. like she goes and burgles a house that's on fire <laughs> and she's just kind of like, I just handed the kids off that were handed to me for safekeeping and took away their stuff. Right. I know. It's, it's no one batted an eye. <laughs> But she's she's even a master of disguise. I mean, she's cross-dressing. She's, um, you know, mm-hmm. hiding herself behind bonnets and scarves. And she's throwing her voice. I mean, it's it's pretty yeah. intense. She's pretty magical. Yeah, she is. But I love, I just, I, Which, I, like, <laughs> I wonder if Defoe had, like, respect for the character or if he was trying to make us not like her. That's just, like, my greatest conflict in the book because I feel like he was trying to say, like, don't live a life of crime, but he made it sound really fun. Yeah, exactly. I mean, it, it was hard not to like her. I mean, you felt sorry for her throughout the first chunk of the book because she's really honestly very poor and she keeps getting you know swindled by these guys and she ends up in these mm-hmm. loveless marriages because she's trying to survive but so you you have a s- sympathy for her and then when she becomes an official criminal you kind of still are rooting for her you know <laughs> like 
Yeah. You're like, oh, that was a really I, good trick, you know? <laughs> yeah, you're like prepared for like Tess of the Durbervilles level of sadness yeah. coming into this story because she's like, my the only reason I'm here is because my mother was pregnant while she was in Newgate prison and she pled her belly so she wouldn't, you know, like be hung. Mm-hmm. And then I was born and then my mother disappeared and I was raised by this foster mother who like didn't even know my real name. And it's just like, this is brutal. This is truly brutal. Mm-hmm. And then with in a hundred pages or so she is swindling people (laughs) and basically like using her feminine wiles to Mm -hmm. take money from people who are more than happy to give it up yeah yeah it's it's incredible and I think one of my favorite swindles of hers was the guy the drunk guy in the carriage and yes that yes because she that that was that the first time that she had crossed that moral line where she actually just slept for, with somebody for money? Yeah, I think so. I think so. Where she was just like, okay, I'm essentially a sex worker, but I'm going to steal everything he has too. Yes. And she does. I was, I kept reading. I'm like, surely you're done, girl. And she's like, no, she's like opening up every single bit of his garments. She's got his sword. Mm-hmm. She's got like... I mean, her arms are loaded by the time she leaves that carriage because she's he has so passed wig. out. Like she got everything, right? And our, it's our, like slapstick levels of thievery that is. she comes away with, like his sword, his wig, his clothing. <laughs> I, I mean, she's an inspiration. I mean. But I think my favorite part is that she goes back to this woman that she calls her governess, who is Mm -hmm. essentially, again, like the midwife who sold babies. And she's got her arms laden down with stuff. Mm -hmm. And she explains kind of the how she happened to get all of this. And then basically she goes, well, since I've already like sold sex for money once, I could do it again. And I'm like, wow. Right. (laughs) Just as soon as she crosses a line, she just kind of reconciles it with herself and then just carries on with no guilt whatsoever. Exactly. It's pretty impressive more than anything. Well, she's like I said, I mean, she's committed, right? And I I, I do yeah. have to reflect back a little on this time. Like women were were in marriages that were as much about convenience as it was about building yeah. a relationship. I mean, it it's not to say that all marriages were loveless. That's not true. But, um, you know, this was a time where women had very limited resources and means. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, I can kind of almost see how it's not too much further of a leap maybe for women who are really desperate, um, to just say, you know what, I had a husband, he's dead. I wasn't really that into him anyway. Let's, you know, or like he's on the lamb, gotta make, right. you know, gotta take care of myself. I know the funny thing is, is like while I was reading this, because we also did an episode on Gone Girl. Mm-hmm. And so, like, you're, if you read this in like a modern, there's no way to translate Maul Flanders mm-hmm. for a modern context. Because if you put her in an era where you can like have real legitimate work and you can own your own property and, you mm-hmm. know, your children can't be taken away from you, she's a sociopath. But if you put her into 1700s context where women don't really have jobs aside from sewing work that they get from their friends, if they mm-hmm. don't have family that can take care of them, they are really up shit's creek. They There's not a whole lot of agency there. No, there's not. And she's actually pretty smart in how she sells goods. So she steals them, but... She always manages to make a profit off of how she sells it. And it talked about Mm -hmm. it a little bit about how she had to, you know, find the right people to sell it to. And um, so she was really clever about not getting caught in that way. But she's kind of smart money wise in an odd way. Um, And it's I mean, she's built herself a business and. Yeah, she she's she has like a mobsters level of understanding of yes. how to fence stolen goods. Yes. And it's very impressive that she wasn't actually raised in a life of crime. Mm-hmm. This is just sort of something that she learned and inferred very quickly. Right. And even at the end, um, when she's in the old Bailey, there's still discussion of whether or not she's really Maul Flanders, because that's not her real name. Mm-hmm. So um, even when she is caught, <laughs> there's still this idea of she was so good at her job 
that there's still the possibility of charges not sticking. Like it, it's always running in the back of your head. Like, is this, is she going to really get stuck with something this time? Because yeah, I, I don't because, know. And she never admits, I love novels like this that are written in a way of like, this is a found manuscript or a fake mm-hmm. autobiography. I mm-hmm. don't know if they have, I had always been taught that they were called like epistolary novels, but that might not be correct. Mm-hmm. Um, but I just love the conceit of things that are published as though they are factual recountings of lives and um, uh, and events, but they're completely made up. And so I just love the idea that people were reading this and they might've been going, oh, there are people who actually live like this. They understand that there are women who have to steal and cut purses and pickpockets and things like that. And then to make them empathize with Maul Flanders as though she was a real person. Mm-hmm. It's a very artful and delightful thing for Defoe to to take on. Yes. And I appreciated too, that we got to see her as an old woman. Like this, this novel really does Mm -hmm. span her whole life from what we understand. And so she starts as a little girl with lofty goals in life. (laughs) And she's, she's what in her eighties when she gets to London and decides to retire. Like it. Yeah. I mean, even when she's in Virginia, she's like 61, I think. And she's still, you know, <laughs> swindling away. Um, I mean, it's a really, it's a long story. And I, I think we don't have a lot of novels like that today where it covers a whole life, you know. It, we, mm-hmm. we tend to like these really intense, deep, detailed snapshots of something that happens. So, um, yeah, it, it's written like an autobiography. And um, we're kind of where it has the frame of this woman who's looking back and recounting all these things that um, occurred over her life. And it's written like it's supposedly her true story. Um, But Mm -hmm. the lady that this was based on was actually, I believe somebody might correct me, but I think that Defoe went to visit um, one of the prisons and he met her and that's what inspired him to write this book. Yeah, so his That's very cool. Yeah, I know, right? So I was I was also thinking about like how messed up prison, you know, um yeah, like tourism is and yeah, it's like so they but you could, you could go into, you know, one of the prisons and they would take you on a tour and they're like this is the person that killed five people and that is the person, you know, and oh. it was like this weird you know safari of the condemned oh perfect yes yeah totally dark and but you know i live in a town where we actually have a prison museum so i don't know how far removed we are but um it just the whole thing the thought of defoe like seeing this creature in a prison like a real life person and basing this novel on her um I, i wonder how much of this was him also just trying to grapple with someone as sad and pathetic that would that would appear i mean they talk about the prison conditions and they're horrible like maybe he was trying to envision like this woman actually ending up repenting and having a good life cuz that's not usually yeah. what happened if you managed no. to get stuck in a prison because <laughs> yeah i mean it, it, one of the most glaring things too is that like mm-hmm. mall the character doesn't she doesn't physically hurt anybody and to know it it, again like you know it happened because being an educated person but to again like be constantly confronted with the idea that like you could be put to death just for stealing stuff and petty petty things right is really sort of glaring reminder throughout this is that like she's stealing because she has to eat and if she doesn't steal she's going to die because she has no other means of income but then if she gets caught stealing like a watch or bolts of fabric Mm -hmm. she can also hang and it's astounding yeah it's it's the that's the dark underbelly of this right because it is kind of a commentary of the the plight of the poor and Mm -hmm. if you remember the people that kept her out of prison and the people that were able to get out of prison were the ones that had the strong connections and for her um you know she kind of in the end got caught but she had enough of a 
connection with the minister that he was able to plea her case so she didn't die right <laughs> um it's 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 yeah. dark I, it's it's almost victorian it's, <laughs> yeah it is it's very bleak and it's very gutting mm -hmm. but i think a really interesting thing that defoe did was that he always made maul a a, a focus of another person's love mm-hmm yeah, which I thought was really brilliant because every single man that she swindles and steals from, mm -hmm. almost every single one of them at some point professes genuine emotion and care for her. Yeah, I thought that was pretty amazing too. We're reminded constantly through the first forty years of her life that she was a very good-looking woman, and That's so, true. Um, <laughs> like, she's kind of being the object of what every guy's affection like seriously every guy in this novel falls for her but yeah like sh they talk to her for an hour and then they're like by the way would you marry me yeah <laughs> literally <laughs> but um but they do they they actually genuinely seem to care and fall for her even the ones that end up abandoning her seem to have mm -hmm. had like a genuine desire to be with her full time not just yeah. to keep her as this you know piece of meat on the side so um, yeah that was pretty incredible and to think that <laughs> out of all of these nice decent guys that fall for her i know like the what the love of her life is this highwayman <laughs> who who runs this big gang and it was yeah <laughs> and they met because they were trying yeah. to con the other i mean it's just <laughs> like meets like i, I mean <laughs> The cemetery. There is no opposites attract in Maul Flanders. She's no. just like the man I am. A, my soulmate is this highwayman who we right. tried to mutually swindle each other through the machinations of what is hinted at as a very nefarious sex worker. It's amazing. I was, you know, what I wanted to do and I didn't get a chance to is I wanted to try to map like how many marriages she was juggling at a time. Because there are, yeah, she's, she's there kind are of, a couple that overlap. Yes, <laughs> there's like this polygamy thing. Because like her first, <laughs> her first legitimate husband dies, mm -hmm. and then she has a second legitimate husband who like offs to France because he's got some debts, mm -hmm. and we never find out if he's alive or dead. Right, exactly. He just, and then she's married to her brother still throughout the subsequent mm -hmm. relationships, and. I get, that that's one of the things when you mentioned that uh certain parts of Mallfinders do not translate well this is one of those parts like this is yeah. a time where you really could just pack your things and go to a new town and assume a new name and everyone's like hello new person and you could just start over and <laughs> we can't quite do that as yeah, easily now for, like, fingerprints and computerized <laughs> records must have been so sweet i know right i was thinking that too with all of the cons that she pulled like you know so many of what we deal with right now yeah. has like cameras up in the ceilings and i mean exactly there's just no way she could get away with most of this stuff i volunteered at the los angeles zoo and because like it, it obviously involved like speaking with and working with children i had to get fingerprinted in like mm -hmm. a national database mm -hmm. and i was sitting with a friend of mine while we were you know going through the organization the you know the onboarding to mm -hmm. volunteer and she just goes there goes our life of crime. <laughs> like, I'm in a database now. It, there's nothing I can do about it. I cannot just change my name and go off to Nebraska, a state I've never been in, and have a second husband. Right. It's it's amazing. And the other thing I also wonder, too, is how recognizable she would still be to people. Because it's not like yeah. there were photographs of her hanging around. And if she is this master of disguise, you know, um, she does talk about being worried whenever she's back in London or, or a city where she has swindled a bunch of people if she's going to be recognized. But I wonder yeah. if maybe she just would have gotten away with it if she had, you know, decided to really yeah. take it upon herself to wear a wig or something. Yeah. Like she does eventually get nabbed by the coppers mm -hmm. by basically going to court and trying to claim that like um she wasn't actually caught 
stealing because she never made it over the threshold right. of the store with the <laughs> bolt of fabric that she was trying to steal. And then when she's in court, she essentially accidentally gives the name of Maul Flanders, like known cut person, watch thief mm-hmm. to the judge. And they're like, well, obviously you were trying to steal stuff. If your name is Maul Flanders, we know about you and like mm-hmm. your legend. Mm-hmm. And she, and I was like, girl, why didn't you just make up another <laughs> goddamn name? No one in the room knows who you are. I know, I know. It's just insane. So, but if if she hadn't done that, she wouldn't have gotten reconnected with one of her how many it, husbands that she actually cared at least about? seven. Yes. <laughs> official five official marriages, one unofficial marriage, one mistress. Like, right. yeah. So there were like seven major hookups. 12 children most of them dead right and and that's the other part is like every now and then she'll she'll mention one of her ex-lovers slash husbands died and the following line would be like but i didn't really feel bad about that (laughs) (laughs) it's like a jackie collins novel it's so impressive she has no remorse I, I was reading this and i was like there's so much to just digest like right. happening again it's like written like a list it's just like i went and i did this and then this happened and then mm-hmm. i went and did this and then this happened so it's 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 off-putting to like a modern sense of how stories are meant mm-hmm. to be written so but the entire time, it, it's it's like a oh, just constant waves of drama hitting you to the point where I was like a little overwhelmed. <laughs> but I have to say, I love now talking about this with you. I freaking love this book, and she's just amazing. <laughs> she is, and she just keeps it going. You know, I mean, it's yeah. it, she's just unrelenting, and she gets better. Like that's a, the exciting part about her life of crime is. She starts kind of bumbling her way through these petty thefts and then, mm-hmm. you know, but then she learns how to do these skills a lot better and she knows how to target people and she knows how to talk to people and she knows how to play the woman card and be like, oh, yeah. I'm like, I'm, I'm this nice lady who's never been arrested for anything. How could you possibly do this to me? <laughs> I mean, you said like she gets better and my brain immediately goes, well, yeah, she did repent when she was about to hang in Newgate prison. And then I was like, oh no, you actually meant that she just got better at crime yes better at crime she does repent but it's only because she feels bad about what happened to her husband who by the way she saved her northern husband several times right like she Mm -hmm. the 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 heat was on and she kind of directed them another way so that that was the other thing that i found that was kind of cool about this book is usually in these older books there's maybe a guy that does all the saving of the heroine and in this case, it was the opposite. She saves his ass <laughs> numerous so times. Many times. And, and at the end, he's he's fawning over her, madly in love still. And once he found out, it's like the, it, I don't know, it, it's like uh, the, the it, Pride and Prejudice moment. Version of the notebook. <laughs> yes, exactly, exactly. It's like Pride and Prejudice where, you know, the heroine finds out that the guy did all these nice things for her. And she's like, well, maybe it's not so bad. Well, it's it's this, exactly. except it's Maul. Maul did all the things. Maul put herself on the line to, to save your butt. And he finds out about it at the very last minute when they're in the old Bailey together. Yeah. So. And then he's just like, I don't like ships. I get seasick, but I'll go to Virginia with you. And then I'll go back to London with you and we'll retire from our life of crime and be old and happily married. And it's just it's actually very sweet. It is. It's sweet. And she does. She chops on the ship several times. And that was, I mean, in the book, it's just sort of like, hey, we're hopping on a cruise ship we're going home but that's yeah. not how these voyages worked i mean a lot of these ships did not make it to shore and she just is like oh well i guess it's time to go back across the pond <laughs> yeah it's literally like and 42 days later we landed right <laughs> which i gotta give defoe credit 
so many books I wish did that for, from the That's true. It's like, true. You saved us a lot of boring heartache of describing like what ships smell like and things like that. Right. I just, oh. If Moby Dick had done that a couple yes. times, life probably would have been better and it would have been 300 pages shorter. I hate Moby Dick. But yes, yeah, it it would have been better. And Gone with the Wind, two books that I'm like, I'm just not doing. I'm sorry. I'm just not going to do it. Oh my gosh, Scarlett O'Hara. She's another survivor, though. I got to give her props for that. (laughs) But significantly more racist than this book because there actually wasn't that much like problematic stuff. Granted, I think she refers to all of her slaves as servants. But other than that, like it really actually wasn't that bad in regards to to 1700s racial relations right. i was actually kind of surprised because they they are hanging out on plantations in virginia you you would think there'd be a little bit more discussion of that but no it just totally glosses over like oh yeah we're yeah, just gonna it, get 150 pounds of tobacco this year magically it just kind of shows yeah up. exactly just <laughs> it picks itself so like okay admittedly defoe definitely glossed over all of that right but, <laughs> but it i don't know i i I thought it was, upon rereading it, I, it's been so many decades since I've, well, now I'm dating myself, but um, it's been a really <laughs> long time since I've read this book. And I have to say thanks for helping me reconnect with this story because I had forgotten just how crazy fun this story was and how it, it really is. <laughs> like, she just has this indomitable spirit and nothing seems to really hamper that, right? So no, I know she never gets bogged <laughs> down. It was it was a joy to read after all of the books that I mentioned to you before we started recording that are just like slogs of Victorian sadness. So yes. thank you so much for suggesting this. <laughs> well, I'm glad it worked out. And I wonder if if you'll ever have another female fuckboy to talk about on your podcast. Ooh, I well, we are doing, I think. Lady Audley's Secret is going oh. to come up. We've had a couple on here. All right. But if you can think of any, we will do them because <laughs> I love talking about them so much. So, uh, Dr. Balthar, excuse me, Dr. Balthar. <laughs> okay, great. Going to edit that out. It's hard to say through a big, uh, nasty grin on my face because this was so much fun. This was fun. Dr. Bartholomew, how can our listeners listen to you and keep in touch with you and your work? Oh, yeah. So you can follow me on Twitter. I'm the literature underscore lady. And you can also find my podcast on Anchor. Dot .fm but it's also on most of the podcasting programs out there. So if you just look up the Literature Lady podcast, um you'll be able to find my work. I also have an email that I check very irregularly, but that's <laughs> literaturelady.online at yahoo.com. So I'm happy to hear from people. Uh and if you contact me on Twitter, I'm more than happy to send a note right back. I'm very avidly a fan of that so um yeah i appreciate you having me on this is so fun this was a blast thank you so much and as always you can follow fuckboys of literature at fuckboys of lit that's b-o-i-s on twitter and instagram at that handle many thanks to our patrons especially courtney landis and susan smith webb who found us on patreon.com slash fuckboys of lit your support through patreon or listening to each and every show helps keep the lights on and the books read you are an amazing audience and thank you again for listening i'm emily edwards and have a good one. Oops, how did incest, how to kid, how's he doing? Head over to Hulu this March, where our new shows and movies will keep you streaming all month long. Catch the award-winning movie, Poor Things, starring Emma Stone, Mark Ruffalo, and Willem Dafoe. Check out the new documentary, Freaknik, The Wildest Party Never Told, about the iconic Atlanta street party. And don't miss FX's Shogun, a reimagining of the epic tale starring Anna Sawai. So, what are you waiting for? Go stream something new on Hulu.